0: Father in heaven, we want to humble ourselves under your word. Let us understand it accurately. God, where it confronts us, may we with with open hearts confess our sin, forsake it, and God, teach us the joy of obedience. Give us faith in what you are doing. Lord, the Scriptures say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We want to listen to the Word and just ask for the faith that opens our eyes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 44. So I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to to follow along with me. Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 to 44, it's a passage that Peter is referencing in our main text today, and I want you to hear it from the words of Jesus to understand what Peter is talking about. Jesus is speaking and he says to those who are listening, he says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is God doing right now? What is God doing in our church? What is God doing in the world? And what is God doing in the person of Jesus Christ? As you think about that question, different people are going to respond differently based on how they understand who God is. Some people are going to say, I'm not even sure there is a God. And they would point at the chaos of this year and say, clearly no one has planned this. Some people would say, man, I don't know if God is able or willing to do anything at a time like this. And yet, Scripture teaches us that God has a purpose and a plan even in times like these. And ultimately, the question comes down to this. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? See, the the story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is all about God's Son, Jesus. Everything before His birth points to Him and anticipates Him. Everything after His birth, all the way through Revelation anticipates His second coming. Everything is about Christ. And the Bible teaches that what God is doing is He is establishing Jesus, His eternal Son, on the throne of David. And one day He will rule in a way where every eye will see and every knee will bow. And the answer to the question, what is God doing?, He is establishing the kingdom of God. And the question then becomes, what will you do with King Jesus? Will you be ready when he returns? See, the answer to the question, what is God doing, is he is building his church. See, the church is the group of people that recognize Jesus is king, And when He comes and establishes His throne in a public and an obvious way, those are the people who will rule and reign with Him. And God is building His church and God is building this church here in Holly. Not just First Baptist, but He's also building every church where they look to Jesus Christ as the only hope for salvation And as they humble themselves under the word of God, the church will be built. In fact, as I was talking to another pastor, we met together for prayer in the past week. And I said, I believe that God is building our church here, First Baptist Church of Holly, and that he is doing it in the exact way that is best for every sheep that is part of our flock here. He is the good shepherd. He does not fail. And even our own fears and failings will ultimately serve His good purpose to bless every sheep. And so the question that I want to ask you is, what are you personally doing with Jesus? And my first point this morning is that we must build our lives upon Him we must build our lives upon him and if you haven't already i want to invite you to turn to the book of first peter and peter describes what happens for those of us who have already trusted in christ and describes what god is doing and i want to invite you to read verses 4 through 6 with me of first peter chapter 2 peter's been talking about how god has called and chosen his people for his own possession, how he's called them to holiness. And now he says this, verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That's a promise that you very personally can claim. If your hope is in Jesus, you can have the confidence that you will not ultimately be put to shame. One day, your faith in Christ will be shown to be pure and precious and solid. Peter is saying, as you and I come to this cornerstone, the foundation of the church, That we will be built up together with other living stones. You see, ultimately, Christianity is not a faith that is just about you. As Peter describes God building the church, he says that we are built together. It's not as if my life is placed on the foundation of Christ and your life is placed on the foundation of Christ somewhere else. We are all together being built up into the same building, into the same body. And because Christianity is not ultimately about me, there is something good and beautiful in being part of the church that God is building. We can appreciate perhaps more in this year than at any other time in my life how horrible isolation and loneliness is. How quickly it leads to depression. And the good news is God is building a people, a plurality. He's building a family. And the people not only enjoy each other, they enjoy God's presence in them and among them. See, I I believe the opposite of loneliness is not being in a crowd of people. You can feel very alone surrounded by other people. The opposite of loneliness is being loved and known. And the greatest joy there is, is to be loved and known by God. And that joy is even richer and fuller when we are surrounded by other people who also know and love God. See, church is not just something that you attend. It's possible to sit in a service with other people and to never know them and to never have a relationship with them, to never feel loved by them. And it's possible to sit in a service and to not feel the love of God or to know the love of God. But what God is doing is something deeper and richer He is building a group of people that do know Him. And and I want to caution you just a little bit. I recognize there are some people that, man, you want to be safe and so you want to stay home. And for this season, perhaps that's okay. But ultimately, God is doing something bigger than just speaking to you privately. He has called you to be part of a body where the love of Christ comes through the people around you so that they can encourage you and build you up. So that you can feel the love of God by being known by the other people who also know God. Peter describes we ourselves are being built together like living stones into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now that's not a religion where I'm going to give you a list of stuff that you have to do. That's not legalism. This is an invitation into something that is sweet and full of joy and full of blessing. And if your heart aches because you don't feel close to other people, I'm not preaching this to lay a burden on you to say, get involved in the problem, be fixed. I'm preaching this to give you hope that there's something real that depends not on you, but on God who is doing something incredible. So be encouraged and seek to be part of it. If you think for just a second, Peter says that, that we are kind of a holy priesthood. That's such a strange phrase, especially in our culture today. If you were to say to, to your friends and loved ones that don't go to church, that, that maybe aren't Christians, you know, this, this weekend I'm, I'm going to go offer some sacrifices as a priest in a temple. They, they would look at you like you just lost your mind and be like, are there goats? You know, like... What are you talking about? And I think part of the issue is we don't appreciate the joy of ancient worship. We don't appreciate the joy of being in the presence of God. So many people, when they think of God and they think of Christianity, they think of being judged and excluded. But the joy of being built together into this holy family, into this holy priesthood, is that God knows you fully. He knows your sins. He forgives them completely. And He blesses you with His presence. And not only His presence, but He brings you close to other people who've experienced the same sort of forgiveness. And from that place of forgiveness, and from that place of being known, you begin to offer what Peter calls spiritual sacrifices. They're not legalistic in the sense that you bring this offering to God to please Him. That's not why we give or volunteer or do anything. They're spiritual in the sense that because you have been forgiven, the Spirit of God is in you, and now you begin to love Him as you should have all along, but that you could not apart from the Spirit of God being in you. Some of you may know the passage Romans chapter 12, starting verse 1, really going all the way through all of chapter 12, Paul describes how we offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices to God, and then he moves along and describes how that works in the entire church. The first spiritual sacrifice that you and I are to offer is the sacrifice of ourselves. We recognize that we no longer belong to ourselves because we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And that's such a good and a precious thing. We have been rescued and purified because of what Christ has done for us. And so we give our lives back to him and say, I I no longer live for myself, now I live for Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? What do you do? Very often, it doesn't change what you do. If you're a mechanic, you'll still work on cars. If you're a teacher, you'll still try to educate students. Especially in this environment, I want to say a special prayer for you and good luck. Very often, what you do does not change, but the way you do it does change. You no longer put in time to collect a check to build your vacation house. You put in time as an act of service to Christ, seeking to build His kingdom you recognize that everything you do is ultimately an act of worship. That you can please Jesus by praising Him, whatever it is that you do with your vocation. And so by giving yourself to Christ, everything you do becomes an act of worship. When you receive good things with thanksgiving, and you work not for your boss or not for your home, but when you work for Jesus first and foremost... And from that place of offering yourself completely and entirely, surrendering yourself to God so that as the Lord convicts you of sin, you confess it and forsake it, you begin to do things that did not come naturally. You begin to live a life of prayer. Because you are a priest, you have access to God, you can talk to Him at any time. And you can talk to Him with your own concerns, you can talk to Him about the concerns that other people have, But you are not a priest by yourself. You are part of a group of people. And so you pray not only by yourself, but you pray with others. And what we've done this morning in singing songs of praise, that's very much what the Old Testament priesthood would do. There's a whole book of the Bible, the book of Psalms, that is a collection of ancient songs that were sung as an act of worship to God. And that's a spiritual sacrifice. Paul, in the book of Philippians, describes the gift that the Philippians gave him as a missionary. So, So Paul is going around telling people about Jesus. And the Philippian church wanted to bless him financially so that he didn't have to work as hard as a tent maker, so that he could focus more on preaching, so that he could focus more on discipling other people, helping them grow to maturity in Christ. And so they sent him money. And when Paul received it, He said, this is a fragrant offering. This is pleasing to God. Some of the sacrifices that we bring together are giving financially, and that's part of what we do as a holy priesthood, and those gifts allow the church to be built. Sometimes it's very practical and boring, like paying for the lights to stay on. Sometimes, and we're thankful for those lights, sometimes, It goes to support the work of missionaries around the world who are working to bless people, whether they are medical missionaries helping serve those who are sick and vulnerable, or whether they are educators like the Chapmans in Congo who are seeking to train pastors to raise up churches around the the greater Congo area. The gifts that we give, the Bible describes as spiritual sacrifices. And so as we have been called together by God, made into this group of people that share his love, from that place of being known and being loved, we offer these sacrifices. But here's the thing, all of us are struggling to feel joy right now, for different reasons. Some of you have had one of the worst weeks that you've ever experienced, some of you have had a few years that have been very difficult and painful. Few people have been out of work. a Few people have taken pay cuts. One of the beauties about being in an election year where it seems like no one knows what's going to happen is almost everyone is kind of afraid, right? And in that fear, we have an opportunity to live in faith. And to recognize that the fight for joy is not new. You see, Peter is writing and he's describing all these wonderful things that, that happen as you come to Christ. As you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. But his point is not just the wonderful things that God is doing. His point is that the cornerstone was rejected. And you should not be surprised when your life is difficult and joy does not seem natural. Church, I've talked about the church being a loving place, but many people will give testimonies that the church is the place where they have felt most hurt, and that can be absolutely true. We fight for love in our church, not because God is not good and God is not loving, but because we struggle to live in this kind of love, and Peter is saying, look, If Jesus Christ was rejected by men, you need to recognize that your life will face similar trials. That the closer you are like Jesus, the more rejection and isolation you will feel. And there are times where that will even divide the group of people that have come together and called themselves a church. There are going to be times when we seek to be built on the cornerstone and it seems like the building is going to fall apart. And that's because even though we long to be built up on Christ, and even though the foundation is solid and sure, some people reject Him. Some people stumble over Him. See, not everyone comes to Christ. Look at how Peter describes this in verses 7 through 8. Peter says, The honor is for you who believe, and it really is that simple. Trusting that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, learning to walk in obedience. If you believe these things, you will obey them. But Peter says, For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now I read the passage where Jesus tells that parable describing how some reject the Son, and he kind of foreshadows what's going to happen in his life as he is killed by people who do not believe that he is the Messiah. And he warns that God in His justice and in His judgment one day will come and judge those who reject His Son. And this is not an easy thing for us to think about. But I want to ask you to pause for a moment. Peter uses the word destined here. Your reaction to these verses might be, this is really, really unfair. Has God destined some for unbelief? But I want you to pause for a minute and to remember two things as we talk about those who reject Christ and are ultimately crushed because of Christ. First, Peter has said that God is building his church. But it does not look like it in the first century. And frankly, it does not look like it in 21st century America. So for Peter to say... That even the rejection of the Messiah is part of God's plan is something that helps us understand what God is doing. You can read, it's always been this way. You can read in the book of Acts chapter 8. And I'm sorry, I don't have this verse up there. Acts chapter 8, starting verse 1 through 4. Look at it throughout this week. When the church in Jerusalem was persecuted, the church scattered and people were being executed and imprisoned. You can imagine, if, if such a thing existed in the first century, You know they, they would bring in like a church growth expert into Jerusalem. And they would start talking about how attendance had really dropped off because the Smiths and the Joneses had been fed to lions last week. And that if they didn't make changes, the church probably wouldn't have much of a future. It didn't look like God was building his church. It looked like the church was about to be wiped out. But Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says that those who were scattered preached the word and the church outside Jerusalem began to grow. In other words, because people in Jerusalem rejected the message of Jesus, the global church grew and was built. And saints, I believe that because church is hard right now the church in America is going to grow it might look different but as you recognize God's grace carrying you through this time your faith is being strengthened and deepened and as you understand that God had a plan and a purpose for this year before we had any idea what would happen As our faith grows, we will trust Him more and more to build His church here. The fact that He has destined these painful things is a hope that we can build our faith on. And the fact that God uses hard, painful, terrible, even evil things to build His church can move us to serve him. See, what what was happening in Jerusalem, you could think, as their churches grew, they had some of the best preachers, they had some of the best teachers, they had some of the best servants blessing the people in the Jerusalem area. And they had some great people who were qualified to serve, but there wasn't anything for them to do because other people more capable were filling those jobs. And yet, as they had to spread out over Judea and Samaria, all of a sudden, people were called up into leadership And as they responded to that call and began to serve, God began to bless the church. People were saved because they heard the good news. Because while they were comfortable in Jerusalem before the persecution, there was no fruit in Samaria because no one was serving there. But God, in His wisdom, used something terrible to grow the church. So the second thing that I want to point to is not only think about how God has used terrible things in the past to build the church and that this destiny is absolutely part of it. Think for a moment about who he's writing to. This will take you back a couple of weeks. When I introduced the book of First Peter, he's writing, he calls them elect exiles spread out over the ancient world in five different cities or settlements. And probably the people that he's writing to had been kicked out of Rome by the emperor Claudius. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They were not welcomed into the places where they were living. They were viewed as some sort of aliens and exiles who were interlopers. They they were coming in and given some positions of authority and power and yet they were not welcomed there. And so you can imagine they would have wondered how someone like Claudius could exist in power on earth while Jesus was on the throne in heaven. These are people who have come to Jesus Christ. They believe that he saved them from their sins. They believe that he is the king ruling and reigning. And then they lose their jobs and they're forced to move halfway across the ancient world even though King Jesus is supposed to be on the throne. And Emperor Claudius, who forced the Jews and Christians out of Rome, Peter is saying, was part of God's plan to build the church. That Claudius was destined to stumble over Christ, and though he thought he was eliminating a local religious problem in Rome, he was actually building the church Claudius was destined to do this the same way Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, and every earthly king has been used by God to further God's plan and his will. And I want you to think for a moment about a modern example, because all that stuff is ancient history. Sometimes it seems unreal. But think for a moment about what it would have been like to be a faithful Christian living in Nazi Germany. Think about somebody like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who might have been thinking about Hitler as he's watching politics and seeing this lunatic rise to power, who, horror of horrors, is even at times using Christian language to justify what he does. Bonhoeffer watches this man rise to power, and he must have wondered, how could God allow such a wicked, evil man to gain power and even to partner with churches in Germany who supported him? Why would King Jesus allow this? Why are the Hitlers of the world allowed to mock Jesus and to profane his name? Part of the reason is because they have rejected Christ. They don't believe the warnings of Scripture. They think they're garbage. And what Peter is saying is that the Hitlers of the world are destined to stumble over Christ and ultimately be crushed. Their sin is a sin of unbelief. They don't believe they'll be held accountable. And so if you're a believer, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you read this passage, and you look and you understand, people in power are there to demonstrate that one day, every knee will bow before Christ, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one day, every Hitler will face an everlasting torment for every evil thing. Every man, woman, and child who was sent to a gas chamber, every murder, every lie, every evil thing, Hitler will be crushed by Christ because he did not believe in Jesus Christ He rejected the cornerstone, built his life on a different foundation. And Peter is saying, for people like this, there is coming a day of reckoning. And the persecution that comes to faithful Christians in dark hours like that is used by God to build his church on this rejected cornerstone. God's wisdom in doing this accomplishes at least two things. It tests the genuineness of our faith while we patiently endure suffering. And when judgment comes, it shows God's righteousness and holiness and his wrath for those who reject Jesus Christ. Now, everyone agrees Hitler deserves to be crushed by Jesus. No one has a problem thinking of Hitler in hell. But the problem becomes as we read lines like, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Then the question becomes what about the really nice people we know that don't believe in Jesus Christ? Are they destined to stumble too? Is God fair in this? And here's what I want to point you to to help answer that question. Even this question ultimately helps us understand the salvation that we have in Christ and the foundation that we have. Number one, Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word. They are not seeking to believe and God says, I'm sorry, I've destined you for unbelief. They stumble because they have disobeyed the word. They've heard the open invitation and said, I do not need it. The reason for God's judgment is direct disobedience to his commands to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There has only been one time in the history of the universe that God has ever poured out his wrath on an innocent good person. And that was when Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross. Those who stumble are guilty before God because they have rejected the Son of God and they have not believed in Him. This is what ultimately condemns every sinner before God, a failure to believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to say to you very pointedly today, if you're not sure that you have trusted in Christ, Believe the promises of God and trust Him today. Don't put this off. You don't know when you will come to a point where the hardness of your heart leaves you to a horrible destiny of being destroyed for eternity. Some of you may be wondering, well, what if I've already rejected Christ? Is it too late? Is it possible that I have already said no to Jesus and so now there's no hope? And I want to say to you that there is always Hope as long as you are alive. And I want to point you to a couple passages throughout the scripture. A couple people that we know about. People like James and Jude, who were the brothers of Jesus. Both of them wrote short books in the New Testament. If you read about the life of Christ, what you find out is that his whole family thought he was nuts until after he rose from the dead. James and Jude could both tell you We rejected Jesus as the Messiah. We didn't believe that he was God until he rose from the dead. And so their rejection, right along with the the priests and, and, and everyone who should have known better, their rejection did not ultimately result in their destruction because before they died, they recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, that he does offer forgiveness for sins. That he does give us new life because he died in our place and he rose from the dead. So those who had rejected him had the opportunity. And another example, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. You can read about this in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. He is addressing the very people that crucified Christ. He said, you rejected him. And then he offers them an open invitation to repent and to be saved. And then think for just a moment about the thief on the cross. Jesus was crucified between two thieves, one on his right, one on his left. One of those thieves mocked him the entire time. And many people remember that the other thief believed in who Jesus was. But if you read the Gospels carefully, Scripture says both of them began mocking Christ. When they were first crucified, they were not willing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And you can almost forgive their unbelief because he's being crucified right between them. And yet, as the afternoon wore on, and as the agony of crucifixion intensified, and as their death drew near, one of those thieves, repented of his sin, of mocking the Son of God who was dying to forgive his sins and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's such an awesome statement of faith because as he's watching this man next to him die, he has faith that there's going to be a coronation day and that there is a hope beyond the grave. And this thief that just hours before had been mocking Christ and rejected Christ, Jesus says to him, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. If you have rejected Christ in the past, know that I am offering you an invitation now to believe and be saved. And if you have life in your body, it is not too late. The scripture says that man is appointed once to die and after that judgment, right now God is extending grace to you and patience for you and you can believe and be saved and have all of your sins forgiven, but do not put it off because those who ultimately reject Christ will be completely crushed by Christ. If you are rejecting Jesus, if you choose to continue rejecting Him today, be warned, you do not know how long you have. Your sin and unbelief will destroy you one day. And I want to beg you, do not be unprepared for death. Repent today. Peter gives sweet assurance to all who will believe so that we can proclaim the mercy of God. You see, God has a purpose for those who choose to reject Him. Nothing in His creation is wasted or pointless. For those who reject God, they will ultimately forever show God's righteous judgment as those who believe in Christ receive mercy. And for those who receive mercy, they will understand in a deeper and a richer way that we deserve the same judgment, and it is only by God's mercy that we escape that judgment. And so as Peter describes that we need to build our lives on Christ and that there are some who reject Christ, finally this morning, for those who do accept Christ, our mission is to proclaim His mercy. Our mission is to proclaim His mercy. Look with me at verses 9-10. through Peter says, But you... So he's addressing those who have faith in Jesus Christ. He's no longer talking about those destined to destruction. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter says, recognizing the terrible future of those who reject Christ, do not be afraid. Recognize you are chosen and beloved by God. How do you know? If your faith is in Jesus Christ, it means God has chosen you. Know that you are deeply loved by God. You are a royal representative. You have been made holy by God, meaning that God has purified you from your sins. He is teaching you to obey so that you don't continue in sin. And you are a people for God's own possession. Don't misunderstand this verse. The whole Bible makes it clear that it doesn't matter who your parents are or grandparents are or what color your skin is. The people of God are a diverse people. Revelation says people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Every skin color are part of the people of God. The point of being a chosen people is that we know that we are deeply loved by God and He will take care of us. God loves you deeply and God loves us as a church deeply what's the purpose of knowing his love the purpose is to proclaim his mercy and so as we think about what we do with this passage of scripture this morning my question again for you as you understand what god is doing in building his church my question is what are you personally doing with jesus christ have you believed on him Are you part of the joyful people of God? Or are you rejecting Him and one day will you be crushed because of your sin of unbelief? The Bible gives an open invitation. It says to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you've never believed, I believe the first step of belief is to be baptized. Let me know. I would love to have the privilege of baptizing you as you begin a life of faith and obedience to Jesus. Christian, if you have already come to Christ, if you already know the mercy of God, let me ask you, how is your faith right now? Are you responding to the events of this year in fear? Do you believe that this is chaos and out of control? Or do you recognize that God has a purpose even in a year like this one? Don't be afraid no matter what happens on November 3rd or however long it takes to figure out what happens after that day, don't be afraid. No matter if if they have a vaccine and then we find out who knows if the vaccine is going to be helpful or not, don't be afraid. If God preserves you and you are healthy, praise God, but if if He allows you in His infinite wisdom to get sick, don't be afraid. The evil that frightens you is being used by your good, heavenly Father. You can trust Him. Imagine the Son of God for a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can read in the Scripture about the fear that He felt and His understanding that His soldiers came to arrest Him, And he knew that he would be put on trial. He knew that he would be condemned. That in that dark hour, God was where he always is on the throne, working for the salvation of his people and the establishment of his king. And if that was true in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's true in this hour, in this place now. He is working to build his church. The foundation is secure, it will never be shaken. And those who trust Him will never be put to shame. Do not fear being ashamed. Christian, let me ask, are you still amazed by God's mercy? Are you still thankful that you have received His love? Are you offering spiritual sacrifices of praise every day? Are you living like a person that God has rescued? Are you proclaiming God's excellencies? You know, I moved over those verses kind of quickly. Peter describes the life of the Christian now, not the life of the pastor or the minister. Everyone here is a priest. Everyone has the job of representing God to the world around us. And Peter says, we are saved so that we can proclaim the excellencies of God. Not so that we can gripe or talk about ways that we maybe God doesn't know the future, maybe God's not in control, maybe this is just beyond Him. That's not how the Bible describes God. That's not excellent. Christian, if you know God's mercy and His ability to save guilty sinners, you've got something excellent to proclaim. If you know God can use the most evil and darkest hours of history to establish His kingdom and His king... You know something excellent about God. And if you are hopeful in a year when everyone else is full of despair, you have an opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of God. And what is more excellent than His mercy towards you? That He loves you deeply. That He has forgiven your sins. That He has given you a place of royal privilege in His kingdom. That He has blessed you. So Christian, Are you offering spiritual sacrifices of praise because of God's excellent mercy? Are you living a life of active service because He has called you and He is using you to build His kingdom and spread His love? I want to remind you of who you are this morning and challenge you that these things would be true in your life, that you would look for opportunities to serve Him in our church and in our community and that you would have the powerful witness of hope in one of the darkest years that we've experienced in decades. Would you pray with me? Father, apart from your spirit at work in us, we are powerless to make these things so. God, I pray that it would be the testimony of our lives that you built your church here in Holly. So build it, Lord. Pray that you would bless us with celebrating your mercy Lord, I pray that we would see more and more people saved as they understand your goodness in giving us Christ. And Lord, we want to exalt him and lift him high. May he be the foundation of our lives and of this church. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.